Well, good morning. It's great to be back with you here at Crossroads Baptist Church on this special Sunday as we get to share some Christmas music with you. I do hope you'll come back for the afternoon service as we'll be sharing uh, several more songs uh, in, a, in a concert. And our group has worked hard to put those pieces together and tells a wonderful message of the Christmas story. So I hope that you'll stick around for lunch and then come and be a part of that special afternoon concert. We'd certainly love to have you there. And I think the music will be a blessing to you. Let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Second Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to look actually in three separate portions of Scripture this morning that are all connected by uh, one major theme. And so I want us to take some time to, to look at each of them and kind of see them in this light. I want to ask you a question as we get started. Certainly, this is not a, a difficult question, but uh, how many of you have ever been involved in a gift exchange of any kind? And most of us have done that. This time of year, we think a good amount about exchanging gifts with all the various people in our lives, and sometimes we even get together and have games that are about exchanging gifts, sometimes gifts you don't want, nobody wants, and everyone's trying to get rid of that weird thing that everyone's passing around. Have you ever been part of, of a gift exchange that was very obviously uneven? Maybe, maybe it was on your end, or maybe it was on the other end. Maybe you, uh, you didn't think too much about it, or perhaps you just didn't have the means, uh, and you, you gave someone a gift, and the gift they gave you in return seemed way out of proportion. <laughs> And you feel a little bit upset about that. Wow, I, I did not put nearly as much time or effort into this gift as you did. Uh, sometimes there are those uneven gift exchanges. And now gifts are not all about how much they're worth. There's much emotional attachment that goes into and creativity that goes into gifts. But sometimes we get in that position we, where we feel like, wow, this is just not an even exchange at all. Well, we have all been, as believers involved in the most uneven gift exchange of all time. Because this morning, I want us to talk about what I call the great exchange, and that is the exchange that Christ has entered into with us. And we'll see how he is a much better giver of gifts than we are, and that he's given the most lavish gift of all time. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is in the middle of writing to the church at Corinth for the second time. And in this particular part of the letter, he is urging the church at Corinth to participate in a special offering that would go back to the church at Jerusalem. They were in, in great need. They had experienced a lot of difficulty there. And so these churches that had been started by Paul and others had been started really at the expense of the church at Jerusalem who sent them out and gave gifts, considerable gifts, to make it possible. And so Paul said, it's the least we can do to give back to them now in their time of need. So he's trying to get the church at Corinth, a, a church that had a lot of growing up to do. It, when he wrote the first letter, they had a lot of issues to be dealt with, a lot of sins to be confronted, a lot of questions to be answered. And now this second time, he's, he's trying to help them as they grow and mature into a stronger and more unified church. 
And one of the things they needed to start doing was giving sacrificially to support the missions projects uh, of others who were starting churches like theirs. And he gives the example of the church in Macedonia. The Macedonians, he says, they gave, and they gave from poverty. They didn't really have anything to give, but they gave first of themselves. And what an incredible example. But that's not his most compelling example when he's trying to urge the Corinthians to sacrificial giving. That's what brings us to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, where he says this, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Now that seems like an uneven exchange. Christ, who was rich, and that word doesn't even do it justice, everything at his disposal, gave up all of that to identify himself with us, to become poor, so that we, through his experience of poverty, could experience his wealth his riches, that, for us, is a great exchange. That's what Christ did for us. And just as Paul was trying to remind them on this particular occasion, I want to remind you of what Christ did for us and see it as something that compels us to gratitude and sacrificial giving. Notice what he says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a well-known story. This is not unknown to us. This is not unfamiliar to us. We know, but often those stories that we know so well, the longer we know them, the less they impact us. That certainly should not be the case for believers when it comes to the account of what Christ did on our behalf. We should never grow tired of hearing about how Jesus Christ left heaven to come to earth. We should never grow tired of hearing how he lived a perfect, sinless life and gave of his time and his energy and his power to invest in the least of all people, people no one else cared about. We should never grow tired of hearing about how he ultimately gave his life as a sacrifice for the sins of mankind and that he rose again and that he ascended back to the Father. The gospel story, we should never grow tired of hearing it. We should never grow tired of sharing it. And Paul says, listen, you know this story, but I want this story to grip you. I want you to see it, maybe as you haven't seen it before. You have to recognize that Christ is a great example in sacrificial giving. So there was something specific he was trying to get them to see from this particular example. Christ gave up his wealth, his riches, his honor, all that he had, in heaven, so that he could come and share in our poverty. That's a great exchange. But there are two other places that I want us to see and dig into this a little bit deeper because I think the concepts of riches and poverty, they are symbolic here. Obviously, not we're, we're rich spiritually in Christ. We know that being born-again believers does not make us materially wealthy. That's not the way it works. We have blessings the world can't begin to fathom or understand, and we have riches waiting for us in eternity that we can't even begin to understand. 
But there's more than just the wealth. There's more than just the, the blessings. There are some incredible things that took place in this great exchange that I want us to see because Paul uses this motif, this idea of exchanging one thing for another on three very distinct occasions at, at least in his letters. Uh, for the next one, we're going to jump forward to the book of Galatians, not too far. Galatians chapter 3. So Christ became poor so that we could become rich, but what else did he do? In Galatians, Paul is writing to this group of believers, and he's concerned for them because not long after his interaction with them, false teachers, Judaizers, those uh, who held to the Mosaic Law and were trying to enforce it upon new believers, they came in and they started teaching uh, another gospel, and Paul's very alarmed at that. He can't believe that, that these believers are so quickly getting on board with this false teaching about how they have to keep the law and how they have to be circumcised and do all these observances. And, and so he's writing to, to remind them of the simplicity of the gospel. And in order to do that, he has to explain the relationship of the law to the gospel, the, the relationship of law and grace. What was the purpose of the law? And he, he starts explaining that in chapter 3. But look what he says here. Verse 9, we'll start there. Actually, let's start at verse 7. Give even more context this morning. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the Gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Uh, so all you Sunday school and children's church people, who sing Father Abraham had many sons. I'm one of them and so are you. Here's your biblical justification for that song, okay? It's, it's, it is a biblical song. All those who are in Christ are sons of Abraham by faith. So I know there was a, a, a trend once upon a time where they said, you can't sing that song because we're not all Jews. Well, that's not what it's talking about. We are sons of Abraham by faith. That's what this passage is talking about. We get to experience those blessings. Look how it continues. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. A quotation from the book of Habakkuk that we find in a few other places in the New Testament as well. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Look at verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Here's another aspect of that exchange. It's that Christ became a curse for us so that we could receive the blessings promised to Abraham and his seed. That's another incredible exchange. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. What's the curse of the law? He describes it here, but I'll put it simply. The curse of the law is the fact that anyone who attempts to justify themselves by the law has to keep it perfectly. And you can't do that. There is no one alive on this earth 
and no one who has ever lived on this earth apart from Jesus Christ who is capable of keeping the law perfectly. You simply cannot do it. And Christ, what he's done is he's redeemed us from a life of endless, futile attempts at earning righteousness by our own works. It's not possible. You can't even be really, really good and get close. The Bible even makes that clear. You might think, well, I'm, I'm doing a pretty good job. There are some big commandments I haven't broken yet. Surely that has to matter for something. Well, the Bible tells us in James that even if we just break one, it's, it makes us guilty of it all. And even, even the, the self-righteous Pharisees, they thought, well, as long as, we, uh, as long as we don't break the big ones, like if we don't commit adultery and we don't murder, then we're fine. Well, James put them right in their place as well when he said that if you treated someone unfairly or you were uh, partial or had respect of persons, it was just as if you had broken those big ones. No one's perfect. And the curse of the law is that if I choose to try to justify myself, I have to keep the law perfectly and I can't. I have cursed myself. I have condemned myself to hell because I cannot possibly keep the law. But Christ did it on our behalf. And in doing so, he became a curse for us. Paul wants to make it really clear what Christ went through, and, and what he's referencing is, is, an, is a law from the Mosaic Law about how anyone who was hanged on a tree was considered to be cursed. The death that Christ died in order to satisfy God's wrath was not a, a death in the eyes of people of nobility. It was not it was a spectacle. It was a shameful thing to die on a cross. It was reserved for the worst of criminals. And Christ took on that unimaginable shame and embarrassment. And those were only slight things in comparison to the weight of our sin. And the fact that his own father had to turn his back on him. Christ took all of that on himself. He became a curse to break our curse and make it so that we could receive those blessings that were promised to Abraham. You see, way, way back in Genesis chapter 12, God chose one man named Abram, changed his name, changed his wife's name, changed their lives forever and made that incredible promise that they would have a son in their old age and that their son would be a child of promise and through him there would be a seed that was as the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky and through him there would be an incredible nation that God would bless but also all nations of the earth would be blessed. And that's because ultimately the seed of Abraham would lead to Jesus Christ himself. And it's through Jesus Christ that all of us have access to those blessings, including the promise of the Spirit, the fact that those who put their faith in Christ are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, sealed by the Holy Spirit of God until the day of redemption. All those blessings are secured at the cost of Christ's life. He's the one who walked this earth and never broke a single commandment. He's the one who, because he lived that perfect sinless life, was able to die as a sinless substitution taking our sin and our wrath 
and exchanging it for his blessings. It's a great exchange. He became poor so we could become rich. He became a curse so we could have the blessings promised to Abraham. Now let's go back to 2 Corinthians, but let's look at chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, a very familiar verse that says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, those are beautiful words, by the way. Those are the words Paul will use over and over and over again to describe our state as believers. We have been joined to Christ, placed in Christ. That's the conduit of all the blessings that we have because we now have the righteous record of Jesus Christ in place of our own. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There's that other aspect of the great exchange. For he, that's God, made him, that's Christ, to be sin for us, that's you and me. Him, Christ, who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This last exchange is he became sin so we could become righteous. We've already alluded to this because all these ideas are, are interconnected. We can't really separate one from the other. But that's what Jesus Christ was doing in his death on the cross. In those moments of darkness, when the earth shook, when the Father had to turn away, when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus had taken all of our sins upon himself. Literally becoming sin. Becoming the target of God's wrath. And our punishment. Just imagine, Jesus, God's only begotten Son, becoming the object of his wrath. Literally concentrating all of the sins of the world on one person. I've said it before, he had to be man so that he could die. He had to be God so his death could be of infinite value. And somehow beyond how our minds can even comprehend, because he was God and man, he was able in a finite amount of time to experience an infinite amount of suffering and satisfy God's wrath once and for all. Don't ever forget Jesus Christ, the only one who never knew any sin, 
became sin itself so that it could be punished, so that it could be dealt with. And because it's dealt with, you don't have to experience that punishment anymore. Anyone who goes to hell, anyone who pays the price for their sin chooses to do so, chooses to reject the payment that was already made on their behalf. This passage, I wish we could get into even more detail, but it describes it so beautifully. It says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He literally, because he paid the price, he made it possible for every single person to be saved. The world is reconciled in the sense that it's now in a savable position. It's sins paid for. But every individual must accept that payment on their behalf. That's why he says, now you are the ministers of reconciliation. Now you are ambassadors for Christ. And in his stead, we go from person to person and say, the price has been paid, will you accept it for yourself? Because every, por- every person who's ever been born into this world is born with a sin nature. Every person born into this world, they live long enough, chooses to sin. And because of that sin, we deserve to be punished. But Jesus became sin for you. So you could become the righteousness of God. This is the, the beautiful concept we call imputation. Our sin was taken and put on Christ. His righteousness then placed upon us. Sometimes it's described using the concept of bank accounts, something we can try to begin to wrap our minds around, the fact that we had nothing but debt, debt we could never owe, and instead now we have an account that is free of debt and full of positive righteousness. Not ours, because we have none, but Christ's. He became sin so that you could become the righteousness of God because when Christ looks upon us, he sees us as he sees his son. Because Paul tells us over and over again, we are in Christ. That's a great exchange. He became poor so you could be rich. He became a curse so you could be blessed. He became sin so that you could become righteous. Here's a couple of questions as we conclude. Have you accepted that gift? We're talking about gift exchanging. Listen, this is the greatest gift of all, of all time. I've just described to you how Christ took your punishment and offers in its place blessing and righteousness and wealth you cannot imagine in eternity. Have you accepted that gift? Have you come to realize that you're in need of it? Have you come to realize that you are a sinner condemned to die? And if you don't accept that free gift, you'll have to accept the punishment that you no longer have to. If you've never accepted the free gift of salvation, if you've never participated and benefited from this incredible exchange, I urge you to do so today. When we have an opportunity in just a few moments for people to respond to the message, if you need to accept that gift, then please come and speak to pastor, to myself, to someone 
who knows the Lord, a friend you know who knows the Lord, there's nothing better this time of year than getting that settled. But those of us who are already believers, let's listen to Paul as he says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let that knowledge not just become, you know, mundane, everyday things that we can rehearse over and over again, teach to other people in a Sunday school class. Let it grip you. Because as he says it even in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the love of Christ constraineth us. It compels us. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. He didn't do all of this so that you could then just live however you please. He did it so you could live for him. And it's only right that in gratitude we would offer our lives back to him in humble service and give whatever gifts we have for his use. So what is it that this Christmas we're not giving away? What is it that we're holding on to that Christ is urging us to use, to give, to invest so that his work can go on so that others can be reached and lives can be changed. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Let's not just relish in those riches. Let's understand that the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts so that we can then share it with others. Let's have everyone stand with heads bowed and eyes closed, we'll conclude this service in just a moment. Pastor will lead a time of invitation as he sees fit. But I do hope that if God's spoken to your heart, that you will respond in some way today. Lord, we thank you for this great exchange. We thank you for these three beautiful glimpses of what you've done for us, these reminders that we so desperately need. I pray that you would help us, Lord, not to get so used to them that they don't impact us. May we be affected today, compelled, constrained, to live a certain way, to do what it is you've called us to do while we still have time. Thank you. We love you. We praise you for all that you've done for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name.